Isn't that what we're all trying to get at? We experience life in relation to ourselves. We are each the protagonist of our own individual Truman Show. People say they tire of identity politics, but identity is the center of all of our lives and everything is political, so tiring of identity politics is like saying you're tired of life. Maybe that's what folks mean? I can't speak for all playwrights, and perhaps many disagree with this supposition, but for me, everything I write is an exploration of who I am in relationship to myself and the world around me. The time travel play is about me as much as the parent-child reconciliation play and the play about climate change and the one about being kidnapped. My constant exploration of who I am through various lenses and in varying circumstances helps me be a better person and citizen of the world. The work I put out is like a bus moving slowly through city streets available for others on similar journeys to hop on for a ride. It's the closest thing I have to a purpose in life. Most of my journey to this point has been centered on my Polish history, heritage, ancestry. I am Polish, and with a last name like Polak, it's hard to feel anything but. It literally means Polish person. I was quite far removed from that part of my family, making this aspect of me a full-on mystery. But I'm not fully Polish. One half of me is third-generation French, or French-Canadian, because I think the distinction would matter to a France-loving French person. This part of who am I has been occupying my brain lately. I recall my grandparents, the first generation born in the United States, with immigrant parents from St. Pascal, Quebec, living in a bilingual household. They'd switch their speech to keep secrets from me and my sister. I'm thinking about my great-grandparents, their journey south into New Hampshire, along with thousands of other French diaspora to work in the many mills built alongside the many rivers throughout New England. They called them frogs. They being those who happened to land on the land a few years earlier and believed it to be their own frogs. I think it was intended as a slur. The damn frogs coming down from Canada, who are somehow not really Canadian, or French, or amphibian. I keep wondering what their Frenchness, their Canadianness, their French-Canadian-Americanness meant to them. None of them are alive to ask. Ribbit. But that's who they were. Their journey is part of me, but not entirely me. Somehow I come from the mingling of the frogs from St. Pascal and the mix from Cork and the Polacks from Borosava. All those journeys converge to result in me and here I am, trying to make sense of all the randomness. And I know I can never make sense of all the randomness. But somehow I will make a play that attempts to give meaning to something like it. And through that play and every other play, I will continue to ask, Qui suis-je? Je suis une grenouille, mais ce n'est pas tout.
everybody. This is the Subtext Podcast, and my name is Brian James Polak. Each month on the Subtext, I speak to a great playwright about what makes them tick. This month, I had the privilege of speaking with Kareem Fami. If you're new to the Subtext, please subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts, which is very likely Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. A couple of housekeeping type of things. At the end of each episode, I mention a play that is filling me up this month. I know many people don't make it all the way through to the end of podcasts, but please do because I want to spread the word on some excellent plays and playwrights that you should know about. And if you ever have a play filling you up this month and you want me to know about it, please send me an email. Maybe I'll be able to add it to the show. The email is thesubtextpodcast at gmail.com. The second housekeeping item is about the 100th episode of the subtext. If my math is correct, and I'm a writer, not a math person, it will be coming up at the end of the year or the very beginning of 2024. Let me know if you have any ideas about how I should acknowledge this. I would love to hear what you think, particularly if you've been along for this ride going back to the Los Angeles days. On with the show. Kareem Femi is a Canadian-born director, playwright, and screenwriter of Egyptian descent. He has directed and developed plays at theaters nationwide. Kareem's plays include Dodie and Diana, American Fast, A Distinct Society, The Triumphant, Pareidolia, The In-Between, and an adaptation of the best-selling novel, The Akubian Building. His work has been developed at Atlantic Theater Company, Denver Center, Northlight Theater, New York Stage and Film, Citadel Theater, and many others. Kareem has been a fellow or resident artist at so many places I can't name them all. He received his MFA in directing from Columbia University, which is a fascinating story that we get deep into. Kareem lives in New York City with his husband, acclaimed fiction writer John McManus, and their dog Kip, who I got to meet briefly and can tell you, Kip is the sweetest, fluffiest dog in the world. This conversation was recorded at Writer's Theater in Glencoe, Illinois, June 2023. since left was like talking about how like expensive the chairs were <laughs> and it was like this little moment where i was like maybe that's not something you right. want to say to the like young director who probably like doesn't make how much that chair costs you know right i don't know it's quite it's right. quite funny it's like the yeah we raised all this money and bought chairs <laughs> and bought chairs yeah. Right, yeah but then she was like but these chairs are from wayfair but these chairs cost a lot of i don't know it's this very funny it's like i never forgot that like yeah here's the really expensive chairs and then here are the wayfair chairs you know yeah know. it was weird I, I don't remember when i first became aware of you but i <laughs> How I, did you become aware of me? Yes. It, I what I do know is somebody specifically said uh, you should know Kareem. Oh. How do you pronounce your last Kareem, name? Kareem. Fami. Fami. Okay. Yeah. Uh, somebody said you should you should know Kareem. Oh. And this was several years ago. And uh, I think I you like you're I'm not. I don't think I was like connected to you on social media or anything, but right, right. your name became like a name to me that I recognized when it would pop up. Um, so I've known of you for years, huh. and and you described yourself a moment ago as a director, and that's how, that was the context in which right. somebody said, "Oh, 
I think they were a playwright who worked with you. Huh. I wonder uh, if it was Crystal Skillman. I don't. I met. I met. No, because Crystal, I only got to know a couple of years ago, so it was probably somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, it was probably somebody else. Um, but yeah, so so. And now here we are. Yeah. So Kareem, the director, (laughs) yeah, has been very familiar to me, and uh, in recent years, I've recognized Kareem, the director slash playwright or playwright slash director. Like, yeah. who knows which one comes first? Both work, yeah. 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 Uh, I'm curious about that 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 leap. Were you always sort of like a multi-hyphenate type of person? I mean, before I even knew what, like, multi-hyphenate meant. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was like, I guess I was always doing a lot of things. I mean, even, I mean, even when I was young, I was, I mean, I was always writing. And then, like, I don't, you know, you don't really, like, direct when you're like you know in high school but I mean I remember at a certain point god this is so long ago now but you know my high school drama teacher in a way kind of as an insult because he was like you know you're a terrible actor but you're probably a good director because you have a lot of opinions <laughs> like it was some sort of like a, a a compliment couched in an insult couched in a compliment I don't know it was just like it really stuck with me right yeah because I, I, you know, it was like, like I was a kid and we had a very like active sort of, you know, a lot of the kids in my high school were very engaged with this drama teacher and he kind of like carried some of us along year to year. Like you could take drama as an elective. And so I took it every year that I could, which is, I guess like four years and he like sometime in my last year, he was like, oh, I think maybe you might be a, a director. And I was like, OK, but I didn't know what that meant. because I was like in high school. Right. Mm-hmm. And, like the only director I'd had experience with him was like was with him because he like directed the school plays. That was it. I had no other frame of reference, but I was writing back then. Just acting. But I was really a, never a very good actor. I think I flirted with the idea of being actor for a about a couple of years and then like failed miserably at every aspect of it, you know, and tr- or at least thought I failed miserably. Yeah. At it. Yeah. What did, what did failure look like to you? I mean, God, this is so embarrassing to go back to this, but you know, like I grew up in Canada, right? Like I grew up in, in su- Southeastern Quebec. And so like not far from Montreal. So like growing up, like Montreal was the place that we went and I did actually, now that I'm thinking about it, there were a couple of like school trips where they took us to Montreal to see theater. Now I remember that. We went to a couple of theaters in Montreal. And, you know, there's this place in Montreal called the National Theater School of Canada. It's like a big, it's like, it is literally the National Theater School of Canada. And I was like involved with a bunch of actors from like the town that I was living in, that, that the town that I grew up in. And a couple of them were like, we're going to all apply to NTS, as they call it, National Theater School, and as actors. And I was like, Oh yeah, okay. I'll I'll do that too. You know, I will like audition for the National Theater School. So I remember there was this whole year where I was like nervously anticipating like applying to this theater school, and I had never done anything like that before. I don't think I'd ever even done an audition before, right? Because I had nothing to audition for. Like the school plays, it was like the teacher would be like, "Cream, you're gonna play the, you know, whatever dumb boyfriend or whatever." So I like did. I had to choose two like scenes. Like first time, I had to like pick a scene. And I did Edmund from Lear, you mm-hmm. know, the bastard speech. And I did, I'm pretty sure it was 
Curse of the Starving Class. I think I did part of Wesley's speech from Curse of the Starving Class, which is a play I ended up directing ultimately when I got to grad school. And like I could just tell when I did the audition that they thought I was just utter trash you know what i mean like it's like you know those like weary auditioners who have like seen ten thousand kids that day and i remember the only thing is like one of them slightly raised their head (laughs) when i did like the part of like you know edmund speech where he's talking about being legitimate and she sort of like raised her head and kind of like gave a half nod like Oh, he made one good choice and then like just right. <laughs> looked down at her paper and I was like, that's it. I'm not going to be an actor. But then I did, I did like, I performed in two plays in university. So this was before I went to university. I performed in two plays in university. I did Baltimore Waltz by Paul Vogel, mm-hmm. where I played the gay brother character, which was a lot of fun, but a really hard part. You know, it was such a hard part. Mm-hmm. And then I did this play called Death and the Maiden by Ariel Dorfman. Do you know this play? Mm, I don't. It's an excellent, excellent, excellent play. It's also made into a really excellent film like many years ago with Ben Kingsley and, um, oh God, is it, uh, who plays the woman in that play? Is it, is it Sigourney Weaver? Anyways, excellent film, but it's like the character that I was playing is like this sort of, is suspected of being this like sadistic man who like imprisoned this woman. So most of the play is the character eventually gets tied to a chair and at one point the female character removes her her panties her underwear and puts them in my character's mouth Mm -hmm. I I spend like 30 minutes of this play tied and gagged (laughs) (laughs) and and then it's like by the time the final week of the performance I was like what am I doing I hate this this is awful yeah I'm being tied and gagged and I never, I never acted again after Death and the Maiden by Ariel Dorfman. So the whole, is this whole, <laughs> is this whole national theater school thing is uh, because obviously here in, in the U S we don't have such a thing, yeah. but if you, if you, is, are you like anointed if you attend a program <laughs> like that and you like, are, are you like a feeder for like, you know, I mean, I think, I don't know, major, actually. You know. I mean, I think it like you get farmed out. I think it would probably be the equivalent of going to Juilliard, mm-hmm. right? Like, because okay. it's like an undergraduate kind of thing. But I think you get just like a diploma. I don't think you actually get a degree. Yeah. So I think it's the same at Juilliard. I think a lot of the NTS, actually, I know a few actors who ended up getting in. And I think, you know, some of them ended up going and like working at Stratford or going to the Shaw Festival and stuff like that. Yeah. But I never, there's also a directing program there, but I never ended up applying to that because I took a different path. But, um, yeah, so I don't know. It's like that sort of weird sliding doors version of my life where somehow I would have gotten into, you know, an acting program. But no, I was not meant to be an actor. And then, and then yeah, I like went into direct. I mean, I could speak for about five hours about how I got to be like this sort of playwright director thing. But largely it was because being a director in the American theater is, at least my experience of it, has been super challenging. Like it's it's always felt like this sort of uphill battle Mm -hmm. and like continues to despite my 15 years of doing it and I love it like don't get me wrong but there was this moment there was like two moments to actually really think about I was thinking about this actually earlier today because I had to also oddly enough do another podcast interview earlier today so it was like this day of like thinking about right who I am as an artist and when I was in grad school I went to Columbia for grad school for directing and you know, at that time, 
probably still true today. Like, you know, Anne Bogart runs the program at Columbia. And like Anne is like Anne. She's sort of like a bold faced name and in her ability to sort of be like, I am a I am a director visionary, right? And that's her thing. An auteur. Yeah, an auteur, which I actually always really admired. Like I, the word auteur to me is like used as a slur in the American theater. I think, you know, you're like, oh, you want to be an auteur? Like people don't want auteur directors, right? You know, auteur directors have their own companies and they do their thing over there. Right. But I think I really did, not that like I wanted to be Anne, but the the thing that excited me about directing was like, oh, I can be like Robert Lepage and like make these big visionary things where I could be at the center of this creative process. And then coming to school, coming to America, where in grad school, you know, we were a very empowered group of directors and there were six of us in the program. And Anne was very much about us developing our individual vision, right? And while still giving us a lot of the nuts and bolts directing stuff, and we had other teachers who were doing that, but then the playwriting program was doing what a playwriting program do, which is like teach the playwrights to, you know, have their voices mm -hmm. and we would work together. And there was always conflict because the administration of the school didn't like the the playwrights felt that we were the special ones, right? Because Anne was the bold faced name. Mm -hmm. But then we had to work with them. And I remember one of my classmates, May and Wong like second year of grad school, we were working like week after week with the playwrights and sort of putting up their little plays that they had written. And I always remember her just like angrily saying like, I'm tired of being a staging bunny. I'm not going to just stage people's plays. <laughs> and it's like, and that really stuck with me. Like this idea of like, Oh, well, what is directing? Mm -hmm. Right. Is it staging? What is, what is, you know, the interpretive art of directing? So even back then I started to feel like, who am I in this when I am in service of a playwright's voice and vision, right? Right. And, you know, f sadly, I don't think my education ever figured that out. Like, Columbia was not good. Columbia was wonderful for so many reasons, but it was not good about teaching me how to work with a living playwright. You mm -hmm. know, they just, the, it, it wasn't integrated into the program in a way. Maybe it is now. It's been so long. But... Then I come out of school and I, for many reasons, decided like, okay, I'm going to just stay in New York, even though initially I thought I would go back to Canada. I'm in New York and it's like, well, what is the engine of New York theater? Essentially, it's new place, right? Like it's not, I mean, there are other things that happen in New York, but I think it is the driver of it is so much of like, you know, the heart of where so many new plays get made and developed. So suddenly I was like, oh, I guess I should be doing that. Like, I had never even directed a reading. Like, I didn't know how to direct a new play coming out of school. So I just started doing it, and I was like, oh, I get this now. Like, I can have a vision. I can be an, a generator of ideas, right, mm -hmm. and work. And I found certain playwrights that I really, like, wanted that. You know, not every playwright does, you know. But the prevailing attitude that I heard from like the industry was you directors stay out of the playwright's way. Like you don't interfere, don't do too much. Cause it's, it's really about the play and the playwright. That seems so misguided to me. Uh, speaking as a, as a playwright, mm. I don't, I don't want a director who's going to get out of my way. Sure. 
like when I when that play is done and then the table in front of both of us, like I I need a partner. I need partners. Like right. I need I need that director and the other folks that are sitting there as partners to make this thing sing. You know? I mean, it's the whole spirit of collaboration, right? It's the yeah. whole like that is like you cannot make theater as a sole individual. It is like by nature a collaborative art. But I think I, and maybe it's like Maybe it's the way I heard it or the way I took it, but I think the impulses that I had were not just, you know, this whole idea like we have to serve the playwright, serve their voice. And I was like, the, the word service, mm. I think, because like, of implies this sort of like power dynamic in which like the, the, the director is, is secondary or something. Or maybe that is what I was hearing. Mm. And I, I bristled at it because it felt like, my artistic voice for lack of a better word was being placed at secondary to yeah, the voice of the I hear that. I hear that. Right. And so I grappled with that, even though the playwrights themselves, most of the playwrights, I've, I've had very, very few bad experiences, you know, like there are very few playwrights that I've worked with where I hope, I mean, maybe this is at least from my perspective where like, there'd be like, I would never work with cream again. Like, you know, I think, I, I've I've been fortunate that I have found like wonderful, creative, collaborative, fruitful mm -hmm. relationships with many, many playwrights over the years. But the playwrights I've worked best with are the ones who are like hungry to have that collaborative yeah, partner where yeah. there isn't a where it's just like we're just doing the thing. Like we are all what we're in service of is the story. Right. Right. But I think people who worked in theaters like I would hear like what we want in a new play process is like a director who's not going to get in the way of the play. Yeah. Okay. I've heard, I've heard this yeah. before. I, yeah. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Or to yeah. like make it be about the production, not the play. So anyways, it was, there was enough of that over the early part of my career that I was like, wait, who am I in this? Like, how am I ever going to feel truly like free <laughs> as an artist? And then as I began, came back to writing as a result of some of that and with the encouragement of a lot of people like people were actually starting to say like oh you're a generative artist like you clearly are not just a director who wants to like stage plays and put them up like you're you're more interested in the creation and there people were encouraging me it's like why don't you create your own work and mm -hmm. I was like well what does that look like like I'm not a divisor in the traditional sense like I have devised plays but I'm you know, like I went to school with Rachel Chafkin. Like, I mean, she was a first year when I was a third year and she was already like devising stuff mm -hmm. with the team. And I would see what she was doing and I was like, oh, that's really cool, but I'm, that's not me. Like, I don't do that. So what do I do? And then I, I got a theater that actually wanted me to create something for them as a director. And I, I literally said, I was like, look, I actually think I want a text to work off of. And they were like, would you like to write it yourself? Mm. And I was like, well, yeah, okay. And at that point, I don't think I had like written a play in probably eight years. Like I had written a couple of plays in college that no one will ever see them. You're not, and then they're like, write a play. And I and they gave me like two years and I wrote and then directed this new play. I want to come back. I want to come back to this moment. Yeah. Uh, but first, I'm hung up on part of your narrative okay and that is <laughs> that is uh the leaving canada for the u.s part uh-huh 
uh, I mean, Canada has a great history of theater. Like there are a yeah. lot of amazing Canadian theater artists. Uh, you talked about the National Theater School, yeah, right? Like, Page. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so why, why leave Canada? That's a really good question. I mean, I, it wasn't like I fled. I mean, I would have loved to stay in Canada. I guess in retrospect, even though I've been very happy to have a life here in the U.S. You know, when I decided that the logical path forward for me, because I had a whole other career. So, like, I studied. And I became a physical therapist. That was what, like, you know, my parents are immigrants. Like, I, I, in no way was I ever encouraged <laughs> to, you know, be a professional artist. Not that it was discouraged either, but mm -hmm. it wasn't, it's not like I ever grew up in any way thinking that I would do this as a career, mm -hmm. right? Like, it was, it did not even enter my perception that that was possible. That's kind of how sort of naive I was. Or maybe it's just not naive. It's just not the way at least in my family that any of my siblings and I were raised to that like like our creative impulses were certainly like encouraged but like I needed to have a practical job you know it's like right. my parents I mean it's so cliched but they're like you are going to be a doctor or a lawyer or a, at one point they really wanted me to be a journalist actually which I flirted with for a while but where did, I where did they immigrate from Egypt my parents mm. are my parents Got married in Egypt. They're both Egyptian, born and raised. They came to Canada like in the late 1960s. Mm -hmm. And actually a lot of this play, A Distinct Society, that is happening here at Writers Theatre is like, it's set in very near my hometown and like deals a lot with like the history of that place. But so when I went to school, I went to McGill University in Montreal to do my undergraduate degree. I got a degree in physical therapy mostly I would say almost a hundred percent because my older sister had done the same thing. I was just literally like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I want to do with my life. Mm -hmm. I'm 18 years old. I have to study something in college. And my sister by that point, I guess had, yeah, I mean, she had graduated and she'd already started her career. She actually moved to the U S almost immediately after finishing school and like was making a lot of money and always had work. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds good. Like, I can do that, I guess. Like, I don't know, fine. You know, and I was a very good, like, I always like just like as a really good student. Like, I, I always got very, very good grades. Like, I didn't find school particularly challenging. Like, I mm. just, I excelled with that. I, I worked hard, but I wasn't challenged by school. And then when I got into my physical therapy degree, I was challenged a little bit. But then when I got out of school and immediately started working, because that's what you do I guess it's yeah. like I had a terminal at that point it was a terminal degree as an undergraduate degree it's no longer now you have to have a doctoral degree to practice it but back then it was like you could practice so I was like 21 years old mm -hmm. and making like good money and living in Montreal and like had this career <laughs> I was really unhappy like I really did not like my life I was like almost instantaneously like what have I done like I got fired from my first physical therapy job after like a month because my boss could be like, you hate this. You're not like, it's not that I was bad at it, but you could tell how unhappy I was. Right. So. And in this time period leading up to that, you had like, you talked about how you had done some plays oh, in yeah. high school and yeah. you had that professor tell you that you're a director or whatever that might mean. And then you said you did some theater. I did a lot. In, I was like an undergrad, yeah, right? At McGill. Tons, tons. So as you're miserable about your day to day <laughs> job, you still had this sort of like, 
thing, right? Oh, I mean, I started a theater company. Like that, mm-hmm. that was, but it wasn't, you know, it was like amateur, right? But sure. I was, and like, it's so, it's funny to look back on that, you know, I don't know if you have the same experience, but you know, when you look back at the person you are in your early 20s, sometimes you're like, who was that person? And how, again, something I'm grappling a lot with in this play here, A Distinct Society, because there's this young, naive boy character in it, and a lot of it is him sort of like coming to recognize things about his existence. And so I'm channeling a lot of that in. But I was a relatively naive intelligent but naive right and I think I put as as many potential barriers to the idea that I could be a professional artist as possible because I didn't have any models for that like I just really did it you know like my father is a he's retired now but he was like a, a scientist and you know my older brother got a degree in microbiology and then went into computer engineering and my sister is in healthcare you know my mother was mostly a a, a, a homemaker, though she worked in retail a little bit. So I didn't like the idea that one becomes a professional artist was just like ridiculous to me. Do you know? But yeah. I loved it, right? So it was my hobby. But I thought of it as a hobby. Like it was like, and my theater company that I started in Montreal was a hobby, though I did like raise money for it and put on plays and directed plays. Right, but you had the day job that's paying your bills. Exactly. Yeah. And then you're satisfying your creative impulses over here. My creative impulses were absolutely fulfilled. And I mean, when I think back to some of those early years in Montreal, it was like some of the most creatively free years I had because it wasn't a career. It was just this thing that brought me joy. It was this thing that brought me so much satisfaction. And it was interesting because even though it wasn't at least initially a thing that I was doing to get recognition, whatever that means, I started getting some recognition. Like the, the, you know, Montreal Gazette would come and review my plays and I got like reviews and, you know, major newspapers. And, and it wasn't until somebody who came up to me after one of my shows. So this is after I graduated, but I had started my theater company and somebody came up to me. She, she's still a, a good friend of mine. Her name is Claudia Schneider. And, she was from New York and she comes up to me after seeing a performance of my play and she's like, so you're the director. And I'm like, yeah, she's like, I-, I hear you're a physical therapist. And I was like, how do you know that? And she's like, my niece is in, is, is Ruby. She's, she's in your play. I was like, Oh cool. Hi. You know, she's like, yeah, I live in New York and I, and I, and I drove up from New York to see, to see Ruby in your play. And she was talking about how much she loves working with you. And, and she's like, cream, like you have to do this. I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, this is what you should be doing. Like, you should not be a physical therapist. Like, be a director. And I was like, thank you, you know, woman that I just met two minutes ago. Right. Like, absolutely not. Like, that's not even a thing that that I'm thinking about. And she's like, think about it. Like, here's my phone number, my email address. Like, if you want to talk more about it, I, I can help you because this is my career. I've been an actor and a casting director. Like, I've worked in the theater my whole career. I'm a professional theater person. And then like a month or two later, maybe even less, maybe it was a couple of weeks. I I guess I called so long. I'm so old. I was like, did I have email back then? But I, I, (laughs) I got in touch with her and I said like, Claudia, so assuming I actually did want to do this, right? Like if I did want to become a professional, what, how do I do that? Yeah. I was, that's how like naive I was. Right. And she's like, well, if you want to be director, like, do you think maybe you, you want to go to school for it? And I was like, you can go to school to be a director, like again, naive. And she's like, well, yeah, there are programs. And 
So I was like, okay, let me start doing some research. And I like looked up, you know, like master's program in directing. And this might actually still be true, but back then, I think in the entire country of Canada, you have to remember, I mean, Canada's like not even 40 million people, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, even though there's a good theater industry, it's not, there's nothing like the US, much, much smaller. And I think there was one program where you could get an MFA in directing. It was like the University of Edmonton, which is in, University of Alberta, which is in Edmonton, which is not a place I had any interest in going. Um, I don't think I even applied. And then I didn't want to apply to NTS because I wanted to actually have a degree. Because I think Claudia had said, like, if you get a master's degree, but you don't, like, succeed at being a director, at least you could be a teacher. Right. So I suddenly got very fixated. I was like, okay, a master's degree in directing is what I need. And this will be the thing. And so I just, I think that first year, I probably applied to eight, nine, ten different programs around the country. Uh Um, I don't remember which ones, all of them, but I know I applied to... Columbia, Yale, CalArts, a, a couple of a couple of others. But then I got into a couple. I got into DePaul. Mm-hmm. Somewhere else accepted me too. But I got all the way to the final round at Columbia. And when you had get you in, been to New York at this point? I had all? been to New York. I had visited New York like as a kid and mm-hmm. I had been with my family and I'd been on a, a school trip and stuff. But when you get into the final round of Columbia for the directing program, you you're invited to come to New York and spend an entire weekend doing a workshop with Ann Bogart. It's a very intensive process. It's mm-hmm. like she invites 25 finalists and like it's a whole weekend where you have to like produce all this work. It's super like crazy and intimidating and like overwhelming and scary. But then I got there and I did my interview, my my workshop. It's not even really an interview. You don't even meet with her one-on-one. You're just like working in this group of directors. And there were all these people from all over the world. Like people from, like literally all over the globe. And I'm sitting there being like, whoa, I'm in the company of these people. And I'm like a kid from Canada who like has an amateur theater company in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And something happened to me where I was like, I think I belong here. I think I I have something. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in this room with these 25 people from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't get in. <laughs> I didn't get in. I didn't get it. Really? No, I didn't. I did it. So I was like, oh. But I, I felt this incredible, at least this is how I'm looking at it, you know, rose-colored glasses. But I, it, it was a feeling of like, I got close and that's meaningful. Right. And I and I do remember thinking and that's why I said no to DePaul and whatever other school. I was like, I think I meant to be either like at Columbia or at Yale or one of these places where I will be kind of among the sort of this sounds so freaking whatever now, but like top tier or do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Like I yeah. was like, I want to be in a place where I'm going to be working alongside other directors that are at the top of their game, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And because that they will make me better. I think even back then I was aware of that. Cuz I didn't think I was I didn't think I was a bad director, but I didn't know what directing was. I actually didn't. I don't think I knew what directing was on a conscious level, but I had a lot of instincts, mm-hmm. right? So that experience of not getting in fired me up even more. And then things changed because when I came back to Montreal after that, I poured even more energy into my theater company. And like, so 
the were shows. Still, were you, you were still working too. Yeah, I still had my physical therapy job, yeah. and I was like, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be even more ambitious in the plays that I do, and I'm gonna like reach for higher amb- ideals, so that when I apply again, I can be like, well, look what I've done since then. You know. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I think it was the next year I did. Susan Laurie Parks' Venus, and it was like nobody had ever done, believe it or not, I directed the first ever Susan Laurie Parks that was ever done in Canada at my tiny theater in Montreal. And I called Susan Laurie, who, I don't know how I got in touch with her, but somebody like gave me her number, Mm -hmm. and I called her, and she called me back. I remember I was like, I probably kept the voicemail for years, but I, I, she like left a voice. It's like I had an answering machine. That's right, how long right, ago it was. Yeah. She's like, hi, Cream. This is Susan Laurie. And like, I heard that you're doing my play in Canada. And I'm really excited about it. I met her in person many years later. And like, I went up to her and I was like, I don't know if you remember, but like, she's like, you did my play in Canada. And we had this lovely conversation. Oh, it was really amazing. beautiful. It was it. really beautiful. But I was so fired up after my rejection from Columbia that I was like, I'm not going to rest until I get into a, a program that I really feel will be a fit for me. And I think I focused on Columbia, Yale, Carnegie Mellon, CalArts. And then the second year, I didn't get invited to the final. The second year I applied, I didn't get invited to the final round for Columbia. That was like the low point year where I was like, oh, I guess, I guess maybe it's not going to happen for me. Okay, pause here for a moment. Yeah. Because uh, I'm going to, I'll end up asking this question later, but I just want to ask it now. Uh, at any point in your in your life up to now, in, in all the theater you did, in your growing up, your childhood, uh, had you done any writing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought I was going to be a novelist when I was a kid. Like, I wrote, like, <laughs> I, I went back to my childhood home last summer, and, you know, my mom is like, kept every single thing I ever created or produced yeah. as a child. You know, like my childhood room looks exactly like it did when I left it <laughs> however many years ago, right? And they're like, I've got one of these like twin beds where like the bed is like a, there are like drawers. So there's t- they're just like stacked full of like old notebooks and things like that. Right. And I was like, I had been writing since I was like in grade school. Like I remember writing, or not remember, I saw it. Like I wrote this like silly like horror story in which all of the characters were like kids from my elementary school class, and I would, <laughs> I would, <laughs> so embarrassing, but like, I my teacher would let me read excerpts from this horror story like every third Friday of the month when it was like we were all tired from the week and be like okay now Kareem yeah. is gonna like read his story like it's just. So yeah, it was, all of that stuff was, was, and then I would write short stories. I mean, I actually published a book of writing when I was 18 years old, mm-hmm. which is I'm like, embarrassed to even take it off the shelf and look at it now. But like I wrote poems and short stories and I wrote these kind of short plays when I was in college and I published them, like legit published. So this, so this sort of like activity or, or output was already part of your sort of creative engine. Always. Despite the fact that you're thinking as your identity i'm going to be a director yeah. at this point when you're yeah. when you're when you're knocking on columbia's door yeah i wasn't writing then cuz i was so focused on the directing yeah. only because like that had been the thing that was getting me the and i wrote a couple of plays in college that did end up getting performed one of which i directed but i i don't know that i found the same excitement <sighs> is that true yeah. 
I don't know. You know, I know you're like, this is a podcast about playwrights. I, you know, to me, the, the directing like the 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 number of plates you have to spin when you're a director and then when you quote unquote succeed when you like put the thing up there's something about that for me as an artist is so satisfying it's mm -hmm. such a skill mm -hmm. playwriting as much as i absolutely love it it's like it feels like a part of the piece and whereas like directing is the whole piece mm -hmm. right and so the the visceral thrill of like making the thing as a director is always like gets me out of bed like when i know i have rehearsal as a director i am like raring to go mm -hmm. right when what i have to do is wake up and write because i have a commission or i have a deadline or something like that or i have a rehearsal and i have to bring in the page it's different if i have a rehearsal and I have to bring in the pages but when i'm just writing for me i'm like Oh my God, how many cups of coffee do I have to drink? Like, how do I like steal myself for this experience? Mm -hmm. um, this is mostly about like writing first drafts, but then when I'm like in the room making it as a playwright, then it's a joy. But directing is, I never dread it. I'm always thrilled. I'm always excited. I'm always raring to go. Mm -hmm. So it's still funny that I'm sitting here like as a playwright now with all of these different plays all over the country because it's not the trajectory that I thought, but I do think that me being a director opened the door for understanding how how to be a playwright yeah you know i didn't under i would not if i had like done the different journey whereas like i'd started out thinking i will be a playwright i don't think any of this we certainly wouldn't be doing this interview uh because of my batshit crazy way of interviewing uh I've I've left open multiple threads but i'm still tracking them cool. anybody listening i'm still tracking them <laughs> i love it uh we're gonna we're all, we're gonna connect everything. All right. Cool. It's so the, it's the like choose your own adventure of <laughs> of playwright podcast interviewing. Right, I love this. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, you're, I think you described it as a low point. Your second rejection at yeah. Columbia. You didn't get brought. <laughs> yeah, I did not. Did not get to the to you the didn't final. Didn't get round. to the final yeah. round. Yeah. Uh, but you maintained the sort of steadfast. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. Or like, where? What was your mindset at that point? I actually—it's just so me now too. When I look back on it, so who I am and so who I've continued to be. I wrote to Anne. I wrote to her after the the rejection, right after the the second year, and I was like, "Hey, Anne, can you like contextualize this for me? Like, I was a finalist last year. I'm not this year. Like, what do I do?" And she's just like. I think I don't know exactly what she said. It was some version of like, you're still not ready, but it wasn't like you're not going to get in or you're not going to make this happen. But there was still this sense of like, keep going and what you're doing. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was enough to like, get me really fired up. Mm -hmm. And then it was, you know, I applied again the third year and again, like every year I was applying to other schools too. And I remember like I advanced into the semifinalist round for Yale one year. Um, but I had got, I'd gotten kind of fixated on New York and Columbia. And at that point, you know, that was the only place you could get an MFA in directing in New York at that time was at Columbia. New School didn't have a program then. NYU has never had a program. There's no program at Juilliard. So it's really the only place where you can, like, like train as a director in the city of New York, which is sort of weird when you think about it, right? And these are three consecutive years? Yeah, three consecutive okay. years, yeah. Um, so in the third year I applied, got invited to the final round. 
I had all this knowledge of what the process was going to be like having gone through it. So I, was, I had a different level of sort of preparedness and focus for the for the workshop too. Did interview. you still have that sense of belonging that you had that first year? It was even more so because it was a different group of people. There were, uh, I think there even might've been a, a couple of other people who had, who like me, who had been rejected before, but were finalists again and a whole new crop of people as well. And I was also deeply inspired. It was a deeply inspirational group of people. Alex Timbers was in that group. I remember Alex Timbers was working on what he presented ended up being that Scientology th- children's pageant play mm-hmm. that broke him out mm-hmm. so funny to think about that now a couple of other really prominent people but that third year i was just like walked in and i was like cock of the walk i was like i'm here i'm gonna make this happen yeah and uh i mean hopefully not too cocky but like i was just like i had gotten really seasoned at that point like i'd really worked on my on my skill you know and i challenged myself with some very very challenging plays um, by that point I had created and directed a play, which is not something I had done before I wrote this musical. It's so bizarre. I'd never written a musical since, but it's like this play with music that we did that I wrote and directed. I directed this really wacky play called Tales of the Lost Formicans by Connie Congdon. I don't know if you know that play. Yeah, I do. Really challenging yeah. play. Did that play. Anyhow, so I walk in there and I was like, this is mine to lose this year, you know? And I actually ended up working on this material that deeply inspiring material that I, I continue to like, I've pulled some ideas out of it that I've, I've put into this play, a distinct society, but I did my, you know, there's like these three different things you have to present. And then I did the sort of like final presentation on the final day. And, Anne like, kind of like she, she comes up to me and she's just like really well done. And I just, I felt it. I felt like, Oh, and it was like a week later I got the email saying like, you know, move to New York. You're going to, you're going to do this. And I was like, great, let's do this. And it was sad to leave Canada because I love Canada. I love Canada so much, but also it was like, I knew that this adventure of coming to New York would just like push and challenge me in all sorts of ways that I don't know that I could have been challenged if I had stayed in Montreal because Montreal, you know, is ultimately a French speaking city. So the English language theater scene in Montreal I had kind of like, not that I had reached the pinnacle by any stretch of the imagination, but like there wasn't a lot of room for me to grow. So I could have, I suppose, gone to Toronto and started from scratch there. But like, I I think the New York thing felt like it just felt natural. And I was one of those people that like New York never daunted me. Like I found New York thrilling and exciting when I first visited it every time. And I, I still do like, I absolutely love that city. And I was like, oh, yeah, I belong here. And that's why I've never left. So when you got that call that you're in, yeah, can you remember, can you remember what you felt in that moment? I mean, I guess I, I mean, what does someone feel when something like that happens? I mean, I think I felt totally exhilarated. And I would imagine I would have been nervous about, like, all of the logistic parts of it. I think I was nervous to tell my dad because I knew, I knew already that he wouldn't be supportive of it. Um, I knew that my mom was supportive of it. My siblings were supportive of it. But when I did tell my dad that I got in, there was like a version of like, well, good luck with the rest of your life. Like you're screwed basically. You know, he's come a long way since then, but there was some fear that what it would be like to tell him. Does your family engage in your work? (laughs) 
Well, it's really funny that you asked that because I found out last night, literally last night, that for the first time ever in my entire life, all of my family members, i.e. like my nuclear family, both of my parents and my two siblings, are all going to come and see this play that I'm doing here at Writer's Theater for opening night. And that has never happened in my entire life. Like, I don't know. I think my father has seen exactly one play I've ever directed in my entire life. Mm-hmm. My mom has seen maybe two. Um, my sister, m- maybe one. They're not like, don't get me wrong. Like my, my family isn't like, they just, I mean, it's like, like so many people, I, maybe this is true of other people in the theater. It's like, they don't understand at all that like what it is that I do, you know, but, but this is different because I'm the writer and the director. So they're like, oh, that just knowing that is like meaningful for them in a different way. But I also like really said like when this play came together and I knew that it was going to be happening here in Chicago or in Glencoe and my sister lives really close by. I said, I wrote to my family and I was like, this is, I I know you don't often like get on a plane and come Mm -hmm. to support a thing that I make, but this is meaningful for me on a lot of levels. And it's like literally about where I grew up. Like it's set, 30 minutes from my hometown and Mm -hmm. deal so much with my experience of growing up as a, as a kid in, in Southern Quebec. So it was really meaningful. So yeah, it's like, so I'll be so curious what that night is like, not to mention that my parents who are long divorced, I don't think have been in the same room together for like over a decade. So that will be very interesting, but yeah, you know, it's a, what I've learned because I have a similar situation with my family as far mm. as the engagement with the work, it's a language issue. And what do you I, mean by that? They don't have the language right. to talk, to like about, talk it. about what you, yeah. So it's, it's, it's alienating. They don't know how to, how to meet you halfway totally. and it's intimidating. Uh, but I think if I bring it to them and if I say, Hey, I'm ta- I'm writing this thing. And you might be. Inter- I think then, like, it, if they get, st- if I if I hit the start button myself, it might. Or I haven't actually tried this before, hmm. but this is my suspicion with my family because we. I'm not an artist when I'm at home. Right. I'm just like yeah, you're, the guy in the family. Yeah. Right. I'm, just, I'm <laughs> totally. Just, I know that feeling. Yes. I'm just Joe, family member. <laughs> um, so so anyway, like this is what I'm thinking of as you're talking yeah. about like your family situation. It's. Yeah, it's so like, especially when I was just primarily a director, I don't think they ever had a full conception. They're like, oh, well, so you did all, like, what did you do? Like, I remember at certain points, I'm like, well, what did you do? I was like, I did everything. It's like every single thing that you saw, like I in some part made that happen, you know? But it's still hard for them to wrap their brains around. But like, they understand that like, oh, those words that I heard you they came out of your brain that I think right. is easier for somebody to understand. But you know, this will be the first time the exception of my sister who saw my play Dodie and Diana in New York last fall. None of my other family members have seen anything that I've written. So mm-hmm. that will also be a really, really big deal. Mm-hmm. I like to hear these words that I wrote. I think like my mom without telling me like came to like a zoom reading of a play that I did. And she told me afterwards that she saw it. I was like, mom, why did you come to the zoom reading? (laughs) Like I didn't even, she's like, well, I saw it on your Facebook and I wanted to come and like, listen. And like, 
it's like my play American fashion, which like my aversion, essentially like my mom is kind of a character in the play. Yeah. And I didn't really want her to see it because I thought she would be mortified. <laughs> and she kind of was. And she was like, she called me. She's like, I, I listened to your Zoom reading. This, my mom does not sound like this. But she's like, she has like an Egyptian accent. But she's like, I listened to your Zoom reading and I have some thoughts and you should call me right away. And I was like, panicked i remember like, utterly panicked for like three days i was like what is my mom gonna say about the, the play in which i you know so a lot about islam what? and me growing up you know muslim and and the sort of schism i've had with my mother primarily about me not being a being a non-practicing muslim right right and she was like she was like i just want to make sure kareem that you're not ashamed of being muslim and i was like Mom, what are you talking about? Is that what you got from the play? She's like, no, I just, I wasn't sure. Are, are you ashamed? And I was like, no. Like, Mom, I wrote a whole play right. about the complexity right. yeah. of, like, totally identifying with this faith that I grew up in but not practicing it. And so I'm deeply not ashamed of being a Muslim. She's like, okay, good. That's all I needed to know. I liked the play very much. <laughs> that was it. That's all she said. But yeah, so it's, I'm still, this is new to me, this whole, like, my family interacting yeah. with, like, you know, there's this thing in a distinct society about, my father is a, a again, long retired now, but his special, he was a scientist whose specialty was the genetics of sheep. So he's a sheep geneticist. Mm -hmm. And so I've had the teenage boy character in my play have his parents be sheep geneticists, but he like kind of says a disparaging thing about it. So I'm just so curious when right. my father hears that line, like, will he find that funny? Will he be offended? Will he claw? I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be a really interesting experience for me. How Maybe I'll never invite them ever again right. after today, after this time. Yeah, I, I am so curious about how this conversation unfolds after. Yeah, after opening night, I'll keep you posting. <laughs> All right, so we've got this other loose thread. Yeah, uh, to come back around to, and that is after after you graduated with your degree from Columbia, you're directing, and you have a theater that gives you this opportunity to write mm -hmm. something yeah. of your own. And uh, I was getting the sense that when we're at that point in the conversation, that this was sort of like the starting point of the playwright part of you being born. Absolutely. I mean, it really was. And I, and I, it, it was newer theater, which is still exists. It's, you know, a theater in New York that's devoted to middle Eastern um, artists and, and, you know, I remember after that was this play called The In Between, which which has not been done again and, and is not a very good play, though pieces of it continue to be interesting to me. But, you know, people came up to me after the play and said, you're a good writer. Um, the, there's some really good dialogue in there, some really interesting characters and ideas. And I was like, oh, thank you. You know, and I wasn't I'm trying to remember what I felt when I presented it. I was certainly like liked the play and had some a sense that there was some good things in it but it was a it was a boost of like let me keep going let me see what let me see what this feels like to keep going mm -hmm. 
but like I didn't know I was like what I'm gonna be a player like I, I certainly at that point was not like I will be a playwright you mm-hmm. know I was like I wrote a play some people liked it I had fun doing it mostly because I just loved being in the room with actors the actors made it so much better as actors do mm-hmm. right I was like oh being a playwright is easy when you have amazing actors like they right. make you look good you yeah. know yeah. like that whole cast is a five-person play and like they're all like amazing actors who still work today you know what I mean like and I was like oh great like I'm in New York, like the city is full of amazing actors. Like I can write things and then I have these amazing actors saying these words like great golden. So I, I was part of a theater company. I was co-running a theater company at that time called rising circle theater collective. And they had a playwrights lab, which I helped to run. And every year a member of the collective got to have a seat in the lab. Mm-hmm. Um, so the year after that play, the in between, um, members of my company had seen my play and they're like, do you want the seat in the, in the playwrights lab? And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Like, let's let, let me try that. But you have to generate an entire play during the lab. It's like a whole season. You have to generate a play. Yeah. So I generated a play and this play called Paradolia, which is also not seen in the light of day, though it did get a production officer uh, offer, which fell through. But then I was like, Oh no, this is really fun. Like this is like exhilarating and challenging to like, figure out all of the pieces of how a story comes together and not that I didn't have fun on the first play but I that first play I knew I was writing it for me to direct whereas the second one like nothing was going to happen with it you know Mm -hmm. like there was no plan other than like at the end you'll get a reading but so that felt to me I was like oh I'm really just a playwright here I am I am creating a play as a playwright and um I don't know. I don't I don't know if it's a very good play. I think it, it again it's an interesting play. But I, at that point I was like, "Oh, I'm onto something here," right? Like and it was starting to diminish that it was diminishing that feeling of me being diminished. Like it was it was filling up something in me that had become a little depleted from the whole like a director isn't a true artist kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Which again, it maybe isn't exactly what people are saying, but certainly what I was feeling. Right. So I could channel some of that into like, oh, this is this thing which is so purely mine mm-hmm. that no one can take away from me or, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and then I just don't even know how I got to the next step because it feels sort of like baffling to me. But I I wanted to make a play about these, these gay Egyptian men. Um, being a gay Egyptian man, I was like, I'm going to write a play about these gay Egyptian men and I'm going to go to Egypt. I'm going to interview these men and like tell their stories. It's so different than anything I'd ever done. Mm-hmm. This sort of like kind of docu play thing. And I was doing all this reading and research around that play. And somebody handed me a novel called The Akubian Building, which is a contemporary Egyptian novel by Allah Alaswani, which I'd heard of before. Very well known novel for Egyptians, um, but I never read it. And somebody had handed it to me because like, there's a there's a gay Egyptian character, like a prominent gay Egyptian character in the novel. And mm-hmm. I was researching this play about gay Egyptians. So I'm reading this novel. I was on a retreat um, at New York Theater Workshop retreat as a director. And I was like, I'm going to turn this novel into a play. You know, blithely like, oh, I can do right. that. Yeah. And then shockingly, you know, the very Cliff's Notes version is like, 
I was like told screw you for like a year and then by by like the author's agents basically okay. not screw you they didn't say screw you but they were just like well I don't know blah 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 they're like why don't you outline a play version of this and we'll consider it mm-hmm. and then the author read my outline and he's like I really like this I want I, I I, I want him to do this. So they gave me an option. And I like adapted this novel into a play. It's a huge project, really mm-hmm. challenging, super challenging. And I think that was the play to a certain extent that like changed it for me because it was like people got excited about it. People got excited about the idea about it. People were like, oh, Cream's taking a really big leap here, right? Mm-hmm. And then I got invited into this festival that they do at the Atlantic in the summer called Mix Fest, where every year they sort of focus on an underrepresented community. And they were doing a Middle Eastern like Mix Fest. And um, Heather Raffo, wonderful playwright, like had loved my play, Yucubian Building, and said to the people at the Atlantic, like, you should, you should give Kareem a workshop to do his play. Mm. And they gave me a lot of resources. They gave me like a dramaturg. They gave me like three weeks of like, open access to the Atlantic offices so I could like work on the play. They gave me like a workshop. They gave me all these actors. And then I was like sitting in the Atlantic theater, like seeing my adaptation of this novel like happen. And I was like, Oh, something feels different here. Do you know? Like, cause as a new play director, I had been the director sitting in the back of the theater where these playwrights are getting these major breakthrough opportunities, you know, yeah. and seeing like, but, you know, as a director, you're like, oh, I'm just here, again, in service of the playwright's breakthrough opportunity, right? But here I was, like, having this thing, you know? And, yeah, like, a few months later, I had an agent for the first time in my career. Like, I had tried for years to get an agent as a director. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to work with me, right? I shouldn't say nobody wanted to work with me. I'm like, right. But I didn't, I couldn't, right? Yeah. Despite having directed shows and gotten, like, I had gotten the a New York Times critics pick for a play I directed and all of my friends called me the next day saying like, the world is your oyster. You can direct, you know, whatever. It's like nothing happened, you know, Mm -hmm. like it did not move the needle at all. But then suddenly I have a workshop of a play at the Atlantic and I send that play and my play Paradolia to a couple of agents and they read them and suddenly I had an agent and Suddenly I have like a team of agents because I had like two agents and suddenly a TV person. And I was like, what is going on here? Do you know? Like I'm a playwright. Like you want. And they also signed me as a director. But then I was like, okay, well, let me let me apply myself to this in a different way, in a new way to be like, what does it look like for me to keep generating more and more plays? So I just said to myself, write a play a year Mm -hmm. like that. Keep directing. Do your thing. Write a play a year. And I wrote, you know, so that's, you could be in building was 2018, 2019, I wrote a distinct society, 2020, I wrote American fast, 2021, I wrote Jody and Diana. And now all three of those plays got produced this season, which is mind boggling to me because mm-hmm. that's so fast, mm-hmm. but in a way kind of reinforced the thing I think is true, sadly for good or for ill about the American theater is that a director can be it's so much harder for a director to break through and make an impact because nobody understands what the craft of directing is, Mm -hmm. but people understand what playwriting is. Like people know, Oh, I can read a play and see its merits. I think most like that is one thing the American theater does really well. Like they know how to read a play and evaluate its merits. 
And I just found it so much easier because all of a sudden it's like, well, here's a PDF. It's like the beauty of the PDF is what I call it because it's like, as a director, you don't have a PDF that you can share. But as a playwright, it's like, oh, you know, Writer's Theater, you know, Theater Works Silicon Valley, here's the PDF of my play, A Distinct Society. Do you like it? And they're like, yeah, we like it. And then suddenly now people are producing the play. So it's like, I'm I'm sort of making light of this, but because I feel, of course, ridiculously like fortunate and so don't use the word blessed often but I'll use the word blessed Mm -hmm. that like this season has happened to me where I've gotten to see three of my plays go from you know nothing to like world premiere productions and to have had all of these experiences because now I'm at the eighth production of my season this being the last one Mm -hmm. and you know having been a director and continuing to be a director who works primarily with living writers, I just know how challenging it is for any playwright to get so much as one production. You know, I actually sometimes feel, not that I feel imposter syndrome because I've certainly worked to get here, but I feel kind of like an empathy and a little bit of sorrow for how difficult it is for most playwrights to get their plays produced, which is really, in some cases, it's the detriment of our field, right? Mm-hmm. Is that there's a glut of plays and playwrights and so few people get to break through. Um, and also because I don't think a playwright actually understands what they are doing until their plays are in production. Like, it's they so just true. can't. They so absolutely true. can't. Because yeah. a play isn't a document. That's my whole thing, right? right? A play is not the words on the page. The play, a play is meant to be a play is not meant to be read as a piece of literature, as far as I'm concerned. The way you're supposed to consume a play is to watch it on stage. Right. So how does a playwright actually understand what they're doing until they've seen that realized, right? And like, I mean, certainly with a distinct society, I mean, I did nine developmental workshops of this play. Like it was like, it was one of those plays that I thought like, oh, it's caught in this sort of developmental hell as it were mm-hmm. until, and I got offered like a couple of more. And I, at a certain point I said, I'm no longer developing this play if you would like to produce the play produce the play and then that's what happened right Mm -hmm. um but yeah i do i'm still kind of like in this like weird state of like while it is happening it doesn't actually feel at all real to me that it is happening because it's like how did this happen especially this year coming out of the pandemic to go from no productions other than these sort of like workshoppy productions that i did um, including the one at Newer, and then I ended up writing that play about the gay Egyptian men, which I did at Target Margin. But like, this is different. It's like real professional productions of my plays. Yeah, it's so just a whole new so, thing. So you're kind of like pinballing around, right, from place to place for the for these productions. Yeah, this season I've been all over the country. Yeah, I've literally like been home in New York for a total of two weeks since November. And it's what is it? It's like June now. Yeah, yeah. it's it's yeah. I think it's what June third, June fourth. Yeah. Right yeah, now? yeah, yeah. Less than two weeks. I've like slept in my own bed at home. Yeah. Is it hard for you to feel like grounded where you are? Like, are you like? How does it feel right now being here in the Chicago suburbs? <laughs> I've been lucky. I've been very very fortunate this year because what happened is that my my husband John, who's a a professor he's a writer he's a he's a actually a, like a very very acclaimed whiting award winning novelist right but he is a professor teaches creative writing and he's on sabbatical this whole year and so he's been traveling with me i mean that's why you, you met my dog earlier mm-hmm. you know we drove all you know we drove from new york to portland oregon for american fast 
late last year and we've been on the road together this whole time so i've sort of like taken my stability on the road mm. with me mm-hmm. i've been very lucky i think if if i didn't have that support system there's no way i would be sane right now through this year because the, the the amount of sort of emotional and sort of creative energy i've had to put into all of these productions this season all of them layered on top of each other it's just it's intense and insane and so draining but I come come home to like my beautiful sweet dog who like licks my face and you know an incredibly supportive and like genius husband who's also sort of my de facto dramaturg. So I was like, you know, this one beat in the play is just not working, and we'll like talk it out over dinner, and he'll have like mm-hmm. ten different ways for me to make it better. You know, so I'm I'm very very lucky and fortunate this year. Otherwise, I would be probably pulling my hair out. Yeah. Do you feel successful? <laughs> What is that? What is what? What is success? I mean, seriously, I don't know. Somebody said to me the other day, like, oh, you're you're living an experience that like most playwrights would only dream of, which is true, 100 percent true. But to me, the measure of this is so just like my personal belief of like success, which I've I've I have like struggled within my brain for a few years, right? Because I certainly have not achieved any sort of measure of, of the type of success I thought I could potentially achieve as a director. Um, not to say that I won't in the future, but I have felt obstacle after obstacle after obstacle through my whole career. Some of those obstacles are starting to diminish a little bit, but it still feels like a huge uphill battle. As a playwright, what I feel now is a sense that I have arrived at something, mm-hmm. right? That like I've earned a place at the table. I think what success, because it's it's a table that not everybody is invited to, right? Very unfairly. Like I can I can just go rattle on an endless list of wonderful playwrights who are my friends and colleagues and people whose work I've directed, who have never broken through, though I think they're some of the most gifted playwrights I've encountered, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like a, to me this is not about like who's a good playwright and who's a bad playwright. It's just like people's lives and careers take these interesting turns and some people get opportunities, others don't. And it's not like, there's so many other factors related to that than the merits of a playwright, right? Or the the success of a play, you know, all of these things. What I'm starting to think success will feel like for me, assuming I'd ever achieve it, right, is the freedom to finally be kind of unshackled from, like, oh, Kareem is supposed to create a certain type of work because Kareem is me, a gay Middle Eastern guy from Canada, mm-hmm. right? And not like I and I I don't like to get like bogged down and like oh identity stuff right but that's been the tough thing because even though I love and can stand by the plays that are being produced this season I'm like really curious what it will feel like like I have this play that I is taking shape in my head and like there are no Middle Eastern characters in that play there are two plays taking shape in my head whereas like they're just there are no Middle Eastern characters in those stories as I'm envisioning them right. Not that I don't want to have Middle Eastern. It's just like that's just not the way those stories I see those stories, right? And like to me, I just don't know what people will say 
right? Like, so I, I'll write that play and I'll hand it to somebody and they'll be like, why did Kareem write this play about, you know, these people? And I was like, well, Kareem tells stories, right? Mm-hmm. Like, my story is not limited to my identity. So assuming I get to this, the, the, the sort of recognition as a playwright that allows me to feel a sense of, like, freedom that my stories are rooted in truth and that truth transcends my lived identity and experience, that will be success to me, right? That will be success where it's like it's not nobody raises an eyebrow. I don't actually know that I will ever achieve that. I hope to achieve that. I hope to achieve that. But it's also the like, hey, look, let's just like be honest about the situation, right? Like some of the opportunities that have come up this season are because stories from my community have been underrepresented. And so like suddenly I'm producing these stories and they're, they're working and some people are like, oh, well, here's a thing that I can do that makes me theater X look good by giving the opportunity to somebody like Kareem. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't say like, I'm not, you know, whatever, biting the hand that feeds me, but I know that's part of it. Right. But what happens when that's not the thing? And it's just like the true, expression of like a a, a creativity which is uncoupled with anything that is like my identity markers i don't know i'm really curious about that Mm. and i'm not sure our field has fully like wrapped their head around you know what that looks and feels like i don't know so maybe that's success Kareem's play, A Distinct Society, is playing at Writers' Theatre in Glencoe, Illinois, outside of Chicago, through July 23rd. Go to writerstheatre.org for tickets and information. Kareem's a busy writer and director and has a lot of work going on around the countries. (laughs) So hop on over to his website to see what else he's got cooking. Thank you to Rob Weiner, Kent, and American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. There are rumors that the paper version of American Theatre might be returning, so keep your eyes open. And while you're at it, support the work of American Theatre and Theatre Communications Group by becoming a member. Visit tcg.org for more information. This episode of The Subtext was produced and edited by me. KJ Jarbo is our associate producer. Music from this episode is from A Midtown Farewell. The theme song is by International Pen Pal. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is The Question Game by Ashley Lauren Rogers. Great play about the attempt at a reconciliation between a parent and a child. It's complicated, it's dramatic, it's at times funny, and also a little spooky. I loved it. <laughs>